Today we learn about the threat of Santa Claus. You know the drill. With big tech, you are the product. Specifically, your data is the product. In black and white terms, big tech makes money from your data. But regardless of the big tech company, the brains that create the big threat for all of our privacy are the data scientists who work for Google and others. One of the specific things that data scientists want to do is to act like Santa Claus by categorizing each of us into their naughty and nice lists. These scientists study the harvesting of data created by users on their platforms. They analyze this data to see if you've been good or bad. Ostensibly, this is a study of your behaviors to increase social activity on their platform or to target you with the correct ads. But nowadays, this data is also part of the mass surveillance and mass influencing that serves some other state or corporate purpose. In other words, this data is used to manipulate, to make sure you behave. Whether they call it a profile or a federated learning of cohorts or a Google topic, the reality is that each of us is partitioned into these lists. I'll be frank, some of you are incorrectly classified as violent extremists just from your Google search activity. In other words, you're in a naughty list, and obviously those in the naughty list become targets. I, for one, do not like to be in any list, especially a naughty list I cannot see. So the trick I will explain today is how to keep the Google data scientists from putting you on some list like Santa. And no, the solution isn't to be a caveman and to emit no internet data. This will not require you to hide. Do you want to know how to do that? Then stay right there. What I will explain today is not really rocket science, but will probably be difficult for many to grasp as far as implementation is concerned. The reason I'm focusing on the data scientists is to make it clear to you that the opposition is a smart cookie. So a simplistic analysis isn't going to cut it. Let's study the data harvesting problem in light of these data scientists. Data scientists at Google and Facebook, among others, spend their time looking for patterns. And obviously, the goal is to predict behavior. For example, Facebook discovered that actively posting someone's birthday on your timeline causes people to react by wishing the friend a happy birthday message. The normie looks at this and says, social media is so nice, people are so kind. The data scientist looks at this and says, the human need is to be noticed and wishing someone happy birthday likely means that that person will wish you a happy birthday back on your birthday. In other words, tit for tat. A pretty mercenary way of looking at this, but that's the reality. Every interaction on social media is measured and the platform is not doing something from the goodness of their heart. They are putting in features to manipulate you to interact. It is not organic. On Facebook, this is very easy to do since every action is clearly identified as being attached to a particular individual and that individual's relationship to others is firmly stated by being a friend or even a more refined relationship like being a family member. This tracking of your data goes beyond just the platform. 
It crosses devices and platforms and now uses various recording techniques. Google and Meta are two entities that are able to track you over the entire internet, meaning outside of their platforms. Likely you do not even know what big tech knows about you. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Google specifically can track you in several ways. First, it can record your activities and everything you do in any Google platform, including Gmail, YouTube, Google Drive, Google Docs, Google Photos, Google Earth, and so on. Second, it knows your search activity via Google search. Third, Google can see every website you visit and can see the interactions you do on those websites. On a phone, they can see the apps and interactions with those apps using app telemetry. You can see then that Google has a lot of data on you, but it goes way beyond that. What Google also sees are pieces of data that confirm who you are. For example, Google can see your IP address. They can see the device IMEI, IMSI. They can get your exact location, often within six feet. And of course, they know your Gmail account. And this Gmail account is very important because to Google, this is your Google ID. Every interaction you do on your browser or app or phone is co-recorded with the Google ID. This Google ID is stored with a browser cookie or is retrieved directly from your phone. Facebook has a similar identifier and it has a similar ability. In their case, it is the Facebook ID. But Facebook has an advantage in that they've crowd-verified this to match an identity in real life. The next step in the data collection process is when you do something outside of the Google or Facebook platform. In the case of Google, the Google ID is seen by embedded Google code in practically every website. This is in the form of Google Analytics or Google Ads. Third-party sites have embedded Facebook code as well with Facebook like buttons or Facebook logins. So let me summarize the harvesting of your data by companies like Google. Your actions are recorded in whatever platform, which is then observed by Google. Google then files that interaction away in your records based on the Google ID. And if you somehow log out of your Google ID, it can look for secondary identifiers that will point back to the original Google ID, such as the IMEI, MZ, MAC address, IP address, and location. So to put this into a structured kind of format, what the data scientist seeks to embed into their system is a way to file the data showing some internet interaction and attributing that data to an identity. You not only have to have the observable data on the internet, but you must also have a matching identifier so that the data can be attributed to someone. This word is very important, attribution. This is a well-used term in cybersecurity. And this is because anyone can be a hacker, but the most difficult task in cybersecurity is to attribute the attack to a particular person, organization, or state player. You will see many cases where a hack is identified and the various cybersecurity research will guess at the responsible party by looking for various clues. Often the clues are circumstantial and can be faked as well. Here's an example. 
there was a hack on data belonging to the Democratic Party. It then showed conversations involving presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Now, the intelligence agencies quickly attributed the attack to Russia, and this was simply based on timestamps. They said that the files of the malware were timestamped, indicating the normal working hours of people in Moscow. However, one would assume that intelligence agencies would be smart enough to also know how easy it is to fake timestamps. In fact, it is no advanced technological feat to change timestamps in any file after the fact. The point of this description is that if you cannot pinpoint exactly who to attribute an action to, it is pretty hard to take action against anyone. Though it was politically expedient to claim a known attribution, some know in secret if they faked it or not. We would never know. In our day-to-day -day use of the internet, we leak identity information if we are not concerned about this. We are the opposite of the hacker. Look at this Google example. Let's say you logged into Gmail. You will at that point reveal your identity. Now you log out of Gmail. You would be wrong to assume you're safe now. Try to log back in to Google and you will see your prior Google IDs, all that you've used, will be shown as options to select to log back in. This means those prior Google IDs were stored by the browser and thus they can be passed to external sites using cookies. Let's look at a Facebook example. Let's say you temporarily log out of Facebook and cleared cookies. Then you go to a website with some Facebook code in it like a Facebook like button. Now at this point, the Facebook embedded code can browser fingerprint you and store an identifier in a cookie and that identifier is temporary but it is associated with an interaction that is now in the Facebook's database. I discuss browser fingerprinting in other videos, but this is basically a technique advertisers use to uniquely fingerprint you even if you do not have a permanent identifier. Next, you log into Facebook again and the temporary identifier is discovered and is then matched to your Facebook ID. So a permanent identifier is now in the database to index the stored interaction. This is tricky stuff here. What I want to demonstrate to you here is that these data scientists are no dummies. They are finding ways to correlate data to identities. This gets even more sophisticated with techniques like cross-device tracking, which I explain in older videos. So how do we stop these data scientists from succeeding? How do we stop them from attributing our internet actions to our actual identity? What we want to achieve is similar to the hacker who successfully pursues a hack but is able to prevent attribution. Similarly, our goal would be to do what we want to do on the internet or say what we want on the internet and prevent someone from attributing that action to us in particular. Can this be done? Yes, but your opposition is a data scientist, so don't expect it to be simple. There are several techniques I will discuss here. Remember, though, that this is a cat and mouse game with a scientist as your opposition. So a multi-pronged approach is needed. First technique is this. Do not log into Google ever on a particular assigned browser. My personal preference for this is Brave Browser. Now, what does this accomplish? Without a Google ID ever used in a browser, then that identifier can never be passed. 
you can use this browser for all internet activity not connected with Google. But this is also not enough. You also should use a VPN and deny location permissions to most sites you visit on this browser. You should also make sure you do not use Google search. Change your default search engine. The idea is that there's no way to correlate other metadata to some prior use of a Google ID. Then as part of this procedure, if you are going to use Google, for example, to go watch this video on YouTube while logged in, then do all Google logged in activities on a separate browser. I recommend you use Chrome. Now, it should be obvious that Chrome can see what you're doing. But Google already knows what you're doing on YouTube and on Gmail. But you will deny it the ability to observe your actions outside their platforms since you will observe this rule. Do not ever visit a non-Google site on this browser. Next implementation of this step is to use another browser, let's say Firefox, to watch YouTube videos and such without logging in to Google. So three browsers at least. What do we achieve here? Cookies cannot cross browsers. The Google ID is isolated to Chrome. Thus, I will call this technique browser isolation or maybe browser isolation of Google. You could use a similar procedure with Facebook on this, but Facebook is ultra dangerous in my mind. Smart privacy oriented people will decline participation in any meta platform. Next place to worry about this is the phone. Now there is no easy answer here because there is no clear way to control the Google ID on a normie phone. The phone itself wants you to log in, just choose the phone, either with an Apple ID or a Google ID. And the Google ID is embedded into any Google app you run on the phone like Gmail or YouTube. So here are the options. The best way to defeat phone tracking is to get a de-Google phone. We have this in our store. These are phones with no Google ID and no Google connection. So they would never be associated with Google. Google also cannot see the identifiers of the phone like IMEI, MZ, and so on. This solution is absolute perfection since you just basically disappear from the view of the data scientist. There's never a way to associate the device to some data Google can track. You're just some anonymous user they detect on the internet. Let's say you don't want to get a de-Google phone. The next option is similar to browser isolation but on phones. And the answer is to have two phones. You get one phone that will never log into Google. You must decline supplying the phone a Google ID. If this is an iPhone, that should be simple. You download your apps from an external source like apkpure.com on an Android. On iOS, you use the normal store. You must never use a Google app of any sort on this phone that requires a login, like Gmail, YouTube, Google Drive, Google Photos. This is not perfect since Google can still see the IMEI and MZ of an Android phone, which makes it unique to them. It also can track what the phone does via app telemetry. However, it cannot get a positive identity. Next, have another phone that you will use with Google. You will log into the phone and use it normally otherwise. But remember that this phone will be used with Google only. And then you can use the two phones like you do browser isolation on a computer. Google doesn't see more than what they already know. Now, this solution is imperfect. 
It will stymie the data scientists a little bit, but unfortunately over the long term, a match will be made based on an exact location and IP address, which will be very hard to hide when the two phones are always next to each other. You can make this work better by having only one phone on at a time. An example of a good use of this technique is to never do political social media on the Google phone. This would prevent Google scientists from categorizing you with a political belief, which can put you in a naughty list if you're on a particular side. By the way, the two phone example would work even better if the first phone was the Google. What we accomplish with these procedures is to limit the data that can be attributed to your identity. This is not the end of this and I want you to start thinking deeply about what you do on the internet. You should be conscious of your activity on Gmail and YouTube using your normal identity. You should always be aware of what you're doing while logged into Google and when using the non-logged in device or browser. You should be aware of permissions given for location and be using a VPN. You can theoretically control what information you emit, which puts you in the nice list versus the naughty list, as long as you consider the attribution issue. This is only the base instructions and once you realize how important identity is to the data scientists, you will learn to manipulate them by letting them see only what you want them to see. You will learn to do things like confuse the data algorithms. The term they would use for confusing data is an outlier. If they cannot be clear on what list you belong in because you're an outlier, they will choose not to put you in those lists. Folks, my company creates products that are intended to protect our privacy. We provide phones that have no centralized control and are invisible to big tech. We have various de-Google phones in our store. These devices use an open source AOSP and have no Google on them and no Google ID, so they are invisible to Google. Check out our store for various models. We have a VPN service Bytes VPN, which is a stealth VPN in that it doesn't scream that you're on a VPN. We do not put thousands of you on a single server. We have Braxmail, which eliminates the metadata from your emails. This means no IP addresses and traces on your email that show where it came from. We give you five domains so you can partition your activities. All these products are on the store on my app Braxme. Sign up on there. You will not be asked to give any personal information to sign up. Thank you for watching and see you again soon.